0: Uh, we are beginning in Joshua 17, going all the way through to 21. I have a confession to make. It's actually more like Joshua 18 to 21. Okay, We've kind of skipped over 17. So if you've got questions about 17, come back to me, grab me. We can, we can talk about those. But if you've got a Bible, turn there. We're not going to read from there just yet. But it's good just to get poised to know that we're going to get into Scripture and uh, hear from God's Word in just a moment. I love to hear people's stories of how they come to faith. I love to hear them. And every story is unique, isn't it? There's there's something very unique about the way in which God calls each person to faith. But at the same time, there are a number of things that you can point to and go, well, actually, that that actually happens in everyone who comes to faith. And there are two um, that I think generally happen, not always, but generally we pretty much always see these characteristics. One is that they come into contact with the community of God. In some way, they're exposed to people who love Jesus and people who live out their faith and then tell them about Jesus. And the second is that they generally encounter the presence of God. They, in some way, are impacted by the reality of God in in their midst. And that usually takes place together when they meet in the community of God. So you meet with people who know Jesus, they tell you about Jesus. And then generally what happens very quickly after that is you become aware of the presence of God through those people. When people gather together who love Jesus, the presence of God is there. And I I just want to tell you a little bit about my story. So my story was that I was a teenager, uh, 15 years old. And I'd been going to church with my mum, kind of over the years, mostly to a church of Scotland. And I just thought it was really boring. I just thought it was dull. I, I think my mum probably thought it was dull as well, but she thought it was the right thing to do. So we went along until it class with rugby. And rugby, of course, won. And uh, so I started going to rugby, wasn't going to church for a while. But then my mum heard about another service that happened down the road at half past nine, which meant I could go to church at half past nine, and then at 11 o'clock I could still get there for rugby. It was a very exciting moment. And so we, we got to, uh, along to that service and I go off to rugby. But generally what happened is, at the end of the services, I'd be kind of standing next to my mum being like, Mum, this is boring. Like, why are you still chatting to these boring people? I want to go to rugby now. And I would just get up and nagging at her, like, come on, mum, this is dull. And uh, suddenly, it didn't become so dull for me, because a friend of mine came in, who was going to go be going to the 11am service, and they brought along a friend, or they came along with a friend. And that, oh, we've got some musical accompaniment. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> uh, that friend happened to be a girl. And um, suddenly... I was devoted. <laughs> I was at like every single meeting. I was at YF, youth fellowship, as we used to call it back in the day. So cool. Uh, and I was at prayer meetings. And I was at house trips. And I was there early on Sunday morning, before half past nine, really excited, ready to go. I was devoted to church, to tell you guys. I was really going for it. But I don't know what happened, she probably just thought, you know, this guy's too funny for me or something. <laughs> but whatever it was, she decided, you're dumped. And so I thought it would be a bit strange if I just stopped going to church. Might look a bit suspect, as if it didn't already look suspect. And so I kept going. And eventually, the girl didn't seem to matter that much anymore. And I was going along, I was singing songs, and I was... Chatting to people whose lives were being changed. And a sense that the presence of God was there. And from that moment on, my life has been totally transformed. And I I guess you guys would probably have a similar story in some way. Whatever your story is, you've probably encountered the people of God. And when you've encountered the people of God, you've encountered the presence of God. And I think that... It's because we are designed for worship. We are made to delight in the glory of God. We are made to know Him and we're made for the community of God too. Joshua 17 through 21 is about the dividing of the land. Now you can look at this and be like, oh, this must be so boring. I mean, this is the kind of, this is the kind of these are the chapters, right? So when you're doing grace Bible reading, let's just be really honest. You are going through this, and your eyes are glazed, and you're reading. You know what I mean? But you're not really taking it in. There's lots of names. There's lots of divisions of lands. It doesn't really make much sense to you. And so you just kind of glaze over But this is God's Word. And in God's Word, we know that every word counts. And actually, as I've studied this, I have to confess, I've been massively surprised at the way which God has spoken to me through it. And I hope that's how it's gonna be for you this morning as well. Actually, this is about something so much greater. These guys, uh, we've, we've picked up the story uh, at the beginning of Joshua. These guys go from the wilderness in the east, cross over west up through the Jordan. God does this amazing miracle. They come into the land and there's lots of battles to fight. There's lots of courage. And now they're in a place where they've come to rest. They've come to a point where they can now divide the land. God has fought their battles. And they're in a place now where they're ready to receive their inheritance. And there's one thing that is abundantly clear about the way in which this whole society has to be structured. The whole way in which the land is to be divided. And that is that right at the centre of the land... There is to be worship the whole community is designed around worship the whole way they do their lives it all points to worship for them to be a people of presence and so are we called to be a people of presence we're going to look at the fire of god that constantly burns in the midst of a people of presence. And then we're going to spend some time looking at the ways that that then should impact us. As the fire of God falls on us, the presence of God falls on us. I don't know if you sense when we're worshipping, but I just sense this presence of God with us as we were worshipping there. The fire of God falling on us. And there should be implications to that, not just enjoying songs. That's when we talk about some of those implications, but let me pray. Father God, I thank you that although we were made for worship and then there is this almighty separation, you have found a way for us to be reunited with you, that God, we have become a people of presence by your grace. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would begin to understand more and more how significant that really is for every part of our lives Lord that we are designed from, from our toes uh, to our, the tops of our heads, we are designed to bring glory to you and so Lord I pray this morning that as we look at the structure of the way in which the land is uh, given by you that we see something so much more than just land being inherited but actually the presence of god being given to his people that you god are in our midst that you are here and that you live in us Lord, help us understand that help us understand it more this morning we pray in jesus name amen okay like i said questions about chapter 17 chat to me later. We're pretty much going to start in chapter 18 so 18 says this the whole assembly of the israelites gathered at shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there and this links it goes forward uh, to 1951 it says this as well these are the territories that eliezer the priest joshua son of nun and the heads of the tribal clans of israel assigned by lot at shiloh in the presence of the lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting and so they finished dividing the land. Israel's whole society was to be built around this one place. They were to be built around this one place where God met with them. And it, it, it harks back to who they were called to be a way back at Abraham. When Abraham is called by God from this obscure place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. And is then given this mighty promise to be a blessing to the nations, that he would father a nation that would be set apart for God. So Deuteronomy fourteen two is helpful. It says this: For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And right at the heart. Of this land has been divided is a place called Shiloh, and Shiloh is probably what you might regard as Jerusalem. It's a different place, but at this stage in the history of Israel, Shiloh is like the first Jerusalem. It is where the tabernacle is to be. In the future, the temple will be in Jerusalem, but for right now, it's Shiloh, and it's where the tabernacle is placed. This. Tent of meeting, where the god where God comes to meet with his people. And it's right in the very heart of the land. So see that big arrow there? And that is Shiloh in Ephraim. And in Ephraim that's the kind of that's a, a hill region, and it's right in the middle of Israel. And so right there, that is where they're gonna place this. Place of worship. Now obviously a part of that is practical because the people have to get there, right? So the people from every tribe would gather together regularly to worship God. But it's also a statement, a statement of who they are, a people built around the presence of God. They didn't just gather to hear where they were to be allotted land but they gathered regularly to meet and worship. Now humanity itself was birthed in the presence of God in a garden whose symbolism is then used again and again and again and again throughout scripture. God establishes through uh, this uh, placement of Adam and Eve in the garden a place of worship, a a place where life was to flourish, a place where uh, these people are designed to bring glory to God And when they bring glory to God in the garden, when they walk with God, they are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. But now we begin to see how God is going to bring back this new temple, this new way of worshipping God. Because the garden was like the first temple. And so now we see in this land, which is supposed to reflect something of that first temple, the garden. Is now being centered around worship. They're to be a people of presence. Throughout the Leviticus, the people of God were commanded to never extinguish the fire outside the tabernacle. It was a, a reminder that God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4:24. That his glory was to be at the heart of everything. That's why. We have at the very uh, top of our website uh, almost everything you will ever see. We have a little statement about who we are a church for God's glory in Glasgow's good. And you cannot be for Glasgow's kids for eternal, eternal purposes without first being a people for his glory. So way back when we picked up the story at the beginning of Joshua, it's the generation after Moses. You remember what happens. A generation uh, who God had met with in the wilderness. God met with Moses, didn't he? And a bush that burned, but didn't, but did, but didn't, did, 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 did it? A bush that was burning, but didn't burn. And then he meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. And what happens there? There's there's a fire and an earthquake. The presence of God, the the fire of God comes. This God who is a consuming fire comes and meets in fire and smoke with Moses. There's a wee uh, series on at the moment on uh, BBC News. So you can go there and find this. It's called 50 Things That Shaped the Modern Economy. And this week it was about how fire shaped humans and forged the modern economy. And it begins by telling a story about a guy called Ed Pulaski. So it's about this a fire that he gets caught up in California in 1910, this great fire. And he and his men cannot outrun it. And so what he does is they, is they eventually manage to hide inside this mine. But he describes this great fire like this. He says, trees were falling all about us and it was almost impossible to see through the smoky darkness. Had it not been for my familiarity with the mountain trails, we would never have come out alive, for we were completely surrounded by raging, whipping fire. Out of that disaster, and some other disasters that took place around the same time, these massive fires, the US government and other governments decided what they would do was extinguish any fire as quickly as possible. They even uh, wrote out this, uh, this legislation that meant that they had to try and put these fires out as quickly as possible. Now that seems to make sense to me, right? But what this article is all about is that actually that was a silly idea. Because the more that you put out small fires, the more likely you are, to have much bigger fires, the fires that you can't control. And so what they would say now is that actually you're better to let the natural course of smaller fires take place so that you stop these great big fires taking place that, like the ones that are taking place in Amazon now where uh, because of human intervention there is a much greater... Fire, a fire that, that really does cause lots of damage. There was terror on that mountainside in 1910. And that's what the fire that burned but did, not but did, but didn't, for Moses, did for him, right? He, he falls face down. And it was what caused the Israelites, looking at, on at Mount Sinai, to make the same mistake as the US government. So I mean by that. Well as they looked on at the burning mountain, they ran from the fires of God that they could not control and replaced them with self-made idols. Those little fires that burn, the fires of God that, that burn, we are supposed to run to them. We're not supposed to extinguish them run to them. And so when you sense that God is doing something, it can be scary, can't it? But don't try and extinguish it. Don't run off. Because actually what you do in that moment instead of embracing God, is you run from God and you start to want to control your own life and do things your own way. And all that you're doing is you're holding that much bigger fire back. Which will eventually come. That's what judgment is, isn't it? Actually, so it's, it's, it's to run away from God and do things our own way. That's why Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Instead of saying, oh God, uh, it's uncomfortable at times. It's hard at times. It, it feels terrifying at times. But actually, God, you're good and you're for me. And I'm, I'm going to trust you in that. The tent... At Shiloh, this tabernacle. It was so detailed. In fact, its design and what the Israelites were to do there is given so much value that 52 chapters in Scripture are given to it. And its most sacred place was known as the Most Holy Place. And it was behind this great big thick curtain. And on that big thick curtain are two cherubim, two angel-like figures. Do they remind you of anything? Do you remember in Genesis when, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden? What is placed at the gates of the garden of Eden? Two what are they to do? They're to protect this temple, this presence of God. Why? Because the people of God, it was, it was symbolising that the people of God could not re-enter Eden because of their sin. And the same thing is taking place here in the tabernacle to say that if you're not a particular person at a particular place at a particular time, then you can never enter into the presence of God. That's what that was to say. And so although the symbolism cried out, God is with you, God is in his glory, is in your midst. The the structure is still lacking. There's still something missing. The people gathered there and they came to worship, but they did so at a frustrating distance. The land was like Eden, but so unlike Eden. Still this immense frustration that they they can't really get near God. God is terrifying and far off, and, and actually they'd be right in so many ways about that because... Their sin would cause them to be burned up by that fire instead of that fire being something that is due for them. But what happens next? The presence of God is localized here. But then we get a little sign in chapter 21 the Levites, the priestly tribe, are given portions that are scattered throughout the land. It's It's a result, actually, of a a curse. Levi and Simeon sin in Genesis 34, and there's this curse that's put on them. But then Moses later blesses them. And the curse, by the way, is to say that they'll be a scattered people. But then Moses blesses them, and then what we see is that they actually become part of this priestly line. And then they're scattered here as a blessing. Into the nation, the whole nation. And then we see that prophets often come from this tribe. Prophets like Ezra, and the one who was the final prophet, John the Baptist. It's another sign here of grace to people who are cursed if you don't know this yet, you're, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, you're actually still under a curse. And it's only through him that we can be blessed. Here is another sign of God's grace. That one day a man who came from the tribe of Levi, was wandering the wilderness, calling people to repent from their sin and calling them to be baptized, said this. After me... Will come one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am unworthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Baptize is literally to plunge, be immersed in the presence of God. So remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about a people who are so distant from God, there's this frustration. They can't get through the curtain, it's guarded by angels, they can't get near God. Now you're going to be plunged into his presence. Every part of you going into the presence of God. Nothing of you will remain that is not plunged into the presence of God. In John 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well. She's a Samaritan woman caught in a web of lies and sin. She is unclean, born in their own family. She's a woman. There are all kinds of barriers in that society for her in coming to God. Certainly not a particular person in a particular place who could encounter the presence of God. Yet, even then, Jesus, this one who John the Baptist promised would come and baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire, he offers her something called living water. Tells her that Worship won't always take place on a holy hill. He's talking about Jerusalem at that stage. But it will take place in spirit and in truth. All over the place. He says, the hour is coming. And now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus dies on a cross as the sacrifice that could take away the sins of the world. He took our dirty rags and by swapping them for his clothes of righteousness, he makes us pure. He was. Resurrected as the giver of life. He was ascended into heaven as the mediator between man and God. And then at Pentecost, when the church was born, what do we read? They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. And began to speak in other tongues. As the Spirit enabled them. The Spirit of God is here now. The presence of God is with us as the church. The presence of God. The Holy Spirit. Even makes us a tabernacle. A temple of the Spirit. When we know the truth. That we should be cut off forever. Separated from God forever. And instead he himself comes. And all those priestly functions that we read about in these chapters. He fulfills all of them as this great high priest who then gives us a way into the presence of God. And now he mediates between us and God. And the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself is in us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book Joy Unspeakable, he says this, if your doctrine of the Holy Spirit does not include the idea of the Holy Spirit falling upon people, it is seriously, grievously defective. This, it seems to me, has been the trouble, especially during the present century, he's talking about the 20th century, Indeed, almost for a hundred years, the whole notion of the Holy Spirit falling upon people has been discountenanced and discouraged. Surely one of the prime explanations of the present state of the Christian church. I'm glad to say that that isn't totally true anymore. Mm -hmm. That there has been a kind of renewing of the Spirit in churches. And guys, we've got to keep pursuing that. Keep pursuing the presence of God. Keep pursuing... This glorious falling of the Spirit upon us. The Israelites were given detail of what a worshipping community with a fire of God at its centre looked like. And we too are given detail. Detail of what a spirit-filled worshipping community looks like. I wish I could get into it right now. We don't have time to get into Acts and 1 Corinthians and Galatians and and really unpack it all and what all that looks like. But we will be doing that as a church. We'll be constantly coming and looking at that as part of the gospel. I really believe that when we explain the gospel, it's important for us not to just stop at the cross. Or even at the resurrection. When we explain the gospel we need to explain as part of that gospel this multifaceted glorious gospel that the gospel in some way does not only stop there but actually it goes further it goes to Jesus ascension into glory into heaven and then to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on his people because In him doing that that is a part of this reunification with God you cannot become a Christian without that moment the Holy Spirit has to come and change your heart we need to know that the presence of God has been poured out we need to know that we are empowered by the Spirit We need to know that he is our helper. We need to know that he is with us when we gather together. We need to know that he is making us more like Jesus. We need to know that he is in us. We need to know that when we're full of doubts and challenges, that he is with us and for us. We need to know that Jesus has unified us to God. here are just a couple of implications that we can kind of get glimpses of here in Joshua 17 through 21 help us to understand how the people of presence are to be changed by the Holy Spirit by the presence of God when the fire of God falls on us number one when we become a people of presence we increasingly enjoy self forgetfulness wait excuse me self-forgetfulness, am I I, supposed to like, you know, uh, like love myself first and uh, isn't that the way to to joy, isn't that the way to happiness, like I've got to be able to be comfortable with me and love me first, that's what the world would tell us, right? No, when the Holy Spirit falls on you and you dwell in God's love for you, suddenly what you find is that the more you fall in love with him, the more you're focused on him, the more you see of his glory, the less concerned you become about yourself. You realise, I'm a child of God, I'm a friend of God, I'm filled with the presence of God. My sins are as far as the east is from the west, I am declared holy and righteous. Actually, all of those things only help you to worship God more, to be more concerned with Him. And actually, the implication of that is that you are so loved, feel so loved, so know His love for you, that you don't need to convince yourself of your own love for yourself, because you're so convinced of God's love for you. Amen. Joshua 18, 8 through 10 says this. As the men started on their way to map out the land, Joshua instructed them Go and make a survey of the land and write a description of it. Then return to me and I will cast lots for you here at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. So the men left and went through the land. They wrote its description on a scroll, town by town, in the seven parts, and returned to Joshua in the camp at Shiloh. Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. And there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal divisions. The people's inheritance is is given in the land by lots. Now a little side note, that, that wasn't luck. Okay? They did it in the presence of God at Shiloh. And it was a sign of their trust in God's sovereignty. We submit, actually, to what he decides. And actually, that's something that we need to be comfortable with as well. That God decides where we are positioned in life. That God decides what happens to us. That God is sovereign over our lives. And as soon as we start to trust that, we, we stop moaning about everything and start worshipping. And we find joy... In the power of the Holy Spirit in all circumstances. That is a glorious thing. Do not convince yourself that your circumstances need to change. Convince, instead, be convinced by God, who is sovereign, that He knows best for you, that He is with you, and that He is helping you. Have your focus be on God. And notice Joshua doesn't get his inheritance until right at the end. He makes himself last. Now if anyone here surely has the right to go first, it's Joshua. I mean, he has led this thing. He has been, since Moses died, he has just stepped up and up and up and up. This guy is smashing it. But you know what he gets? God's been fighting his battles. Do you know what he gets? That actually, even at this moment... Before Christ has come, he recognises something of God. That actually God himself is self-sacrificing for them. And so he, in turn, is somebody who self-sacrifices. Leadership in the kingdom of God is cross-shaped. If you desire leadership, be very careful. If you desire leadership, make sure with all of your heart that you know that that desire is rooted in worship. That desire isn't rooted in ambition. That desire isn't rooted in you becoming something for yourself. But actually, your desire is rooted in making more of God and putting others before yourself. Jonathan Edwards, who was used powerfully by God during the Great Awakening during the 1800s, in America said this, the desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope and their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken hearted joy and leaves the Christian more pure in spirit and more like a little child. Are more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. We are calling all of us to self sacrifice. That's the way of the cross. Hey, we might not be able to grow quite so fast. I don't care. This is what God's Word says. Got to put others first in our lives. We've got to be God before all things. Here's the next one. Number two, when we become a people of presence, we act like a refuge for others. We act like a refuge for others. Others. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 9 says this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally May flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of those cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbour unintentionally and without malice eh, afterthought. How do you say that? A forethought. Ah, it does say a forethought. Sorry. Here we are. Every day is a school day. They are to stay in that city city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So they set apart Kedesh. In Galilee and the hill country of Nephtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kerith, uh, uh, Kerith Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. East of the Jordan, on the other side of the Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness, in the plateau in the, tri- in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gali- Gilead in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan in the tribe of M- Manasseh. In the presence of God, we grow. In the presence of God is life, and life, who want to make, uh, we're given life, and that means that we want to make more of God and less of ourselves, but in that, we become more like Christ. So, Israel was not complete at this stage, the fighting was not over, and like us today in the church, They are looking forward to a better day, right? So they're still looking forward to this better day. That means that they have to deal with the problems of life, right? And there are all sorts of problems in life, aren't there? And so, one of the implications is that they bring in governance that's going to help them to bring justice and make sure that people don't just get revenge and do their own thing, right? It also means that innocent people would be protected. And so they care. They care about people. They care about justice. They care about people getting what is right. Not just allowing chaos to take place. So God instructs them to create these places of refuge, right? Places where uh, people could go when they're in danger. Places where they could go uh, when maybe family members or others are chasing after them. I was... um, At glasgow city mission last week and at glasgow city mission we're talking about having a partnership with them and i was so delighted to hear that already a few people from the church have been in contact with them and said look we want to volunteer so they put down our details that's brilliant that is so good because as people who love god who find their refuge in god we too are to be people of refuge We are to be people who give people shelter. We are to be people who, when there's people in need, that we would say, come on, come to our home, have some food. Here's here's something to help you on your way. There's all sorts of wise ways of doing that, appropriate ways of doing that, but we've got to care, we've got to love, we've got to be people of refuge. And really what we see here is, is something, again, of the character of God. God commands them to do this, that he is a refuge and that actually he expects his people to be people who behave like him, who are like a refuge to people. <clears throat> Last thing, when we become a people of presence, we do it together. Now all these what you'll see through all these chapters is that all these different tribes gather together in Shiloh, but also they have their own roles. There's different things in which they are to do in the land, and they're given different lands in which they are to inhabit. So the structure was big, in that they all gathered in, at Shiloh from time to time, but it was also small, so they gathered locally, and these priests that were uh, dotted around the land were to play a role in that as well. So they would gather in smaller groups. PJ Smythe, who leads Advance, he says, as we get bigger, we must become smaller. And what he means by that is that as a church grows, it's really important that we also have smaller groups for people to connect and really go deeper in relationship with one another. And so for us, that's Grace Communities. So that's why we have such an emphasis on Sundays and on our Grace Communities. And what we try really hard to do is not do too many things. Now, it's difficult because there's all sorts of needs, there's all sorts of things that we want to be about to do. But what we try our best to do is to really only have too many things a week that you're committed to. And that generally is Grace Communities through the week and Sundays. And then when we don't have Grace Communities, we'll often put other things on, like our worship night on the 11th. She come. It's going to be great. Um, but that is essentially what we want to do. And what we see here is that actually, as people gather, they find their highest privilege. That is where God will manifest his presence. And we need to come With that level of anticipation about what the church is. So as a local church, when we come to meet together, we're coming to meet in the presence of God. And we need to really be aware of that. So on a Sunday morning, here's what I'd love to encourage you to do. Before you come on a Sunday, pray. Pray. And I know it's hard, but particularly if you've got families and you're rushing around and there's craziness trying to get here. Some of you are serving really early. I know it's tough. Maybe do it on a Saturday if you want to do it on a Saturday. But, but prepare your heart because as we come, those prayers will be answered. And we want people to come and meet together in the presence of God, not just to come along to an event. But to come along and receive from the presence of God together as we serve one another. God delights in his people gathering together. We must remember that. God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And as a people who were once far off from the presence of God, this consuming fire was terrifying, wasn't it? But now, we want to call on the fire of God to fall on us. We want to call on God to fall on us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So why don't we stand together, and I'm going to do exactly that.